Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 872 with Michael Dorf. We're putting on a show. We're serving real food. We're, we're trying to have legitimate human interaction and, and create a great experience. That, that can't be digitized. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy, a company you've been hearing me reference a lot on the show lately, and that's because they're awesome. And I want to make sure you know about some new e-learning courses they have available right now. Diageo Bar Academy is always free with tons of resources that can help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So these courses I'm talking about, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness Essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, you'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant leans more towards the spirits, then make sure you take the interactive course on spirits and food pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate their dining experience and help you improve your check averages. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and talk to the manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that talk to the manager provides. Also, with talk to the manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with talk to the manager. Head to talk to the manager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60 day trial. 
What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that this podcast does need your support. There's a few ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors that you just listened to. You can click our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everybody and anyone you know in the restaurant industry, and you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network and be a part of the conversation, and really, that's where I can best serve you. So we have a great show for you today. After studying psychology and business at Washington University to Today's guest founded New York City's The Knitting Factory in 1986. Uh, He was recognized as a pioneer in producing music on the internet through a variety of strategic relationships with Apple Computer, Intel, MCI, and Bell Atlantic. During his Knitting Factory tenure, he produced over 200 recordings, a television series, and built a venue in Los Angeles. In 2002, he left the operating responsibilities uh, of The Knitting Factory and sold his equity position to pursue endeavors, including winemaking. And then by 2008, he had conceptualized a venue that brought his love for both making and enjoying wine under one roof to create city winery. Manhattan's first fully functional winery, restaurant, music venue, and private event space. Today, city winery consists of 12 venues spread throughout eight cities, including New York, Chicago, Nashville, Boston, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and the Hudson Valley with multiple new venues slated to open in 2022. With no further ado, here he is, Michael Dorf. With excitement, allow me to introduce you today's guest, CEO and founder of City Winery and author of Indulge Your Senses, Scaling Intimacy in the Digital World, Michael Dorf. My man, Michael, are you feeling unstoppable today? Very unstoppable. Yes, man. I cannot wait to dive into your story. Um, I mean, just the things you've done, you've done a lot in your career and uh, the people you I'm met. I'm getting old, man. I'm, <laughs> the having, you I'm have. having a 60th birthday coming up, which man. is freaking me out. So, 60, yeah. I, 60 yeah. is the new 30, man. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? You got to love what you do. Yeah. Clearly. I mean, it's the easiest mantra in the world. If you don't love what you do, you know, you're, you're not going to be happy. And if you're not happy, it's going to affect your work. I love it. Uh, you know, our, our work mantra here is indulge your senses. That's the name of the book. Mm-hmm. It's become a real mantra for us and it can be played in so many different ways. Yeah. And I know that you, you apply that idea of indulging your senses, not to just the guest, but to the employee. It's too. an inward facing as well. It's kind of, you know, like let's do it or, or think different when, when that genius one for Apple, it was really internal and external. It worked for everybody. And when you can get a mantra like that, that, that goes deep inside the company, because if it doesn't work for yourself, it might not be working for your guests. You know, mm-hmm. the whole, the knitting factory, I'm not going to jump there it's so, too fast, but that was built for me. City Winery was built for me. I'm a selfish, ultimately, person. I want to go to a place that I really like. And if, if it doesn't work for me, yeah. I don't think it's going to work for others. How are you going to show up 100% if you, every day? Because you will, for a long time, have to show up every day, if you're, especially starting small, right? It has to be an extension of you. It has, it has to be something that you can show up to every day because you're going to have to show up. Absolutely. Uh, and I love this idea of indulging the senses. And you're kind of pulling at the strings of my heart a little bit because as somebody uh, who is, has been studying the hospitality industry and also been studying technology, there seems to be like this you know, exponential growth. We know there's an exponential growth of technology, but at the same time, 
that technology exists for us, but humans are not evolving at an exponential rate. So it's really interesting to hear your perspectives on kind of staying rooted to who we are not forgetting who we are and what we need our our senses indulging our senses like we we don't use all of our senses digitally you know like we leave so much of it out and i'm really excited to pull back the layers on that too it's a bit of a reaction even to to the amount of technology that's out there we we need to remind ourselves and eating is as primitive as it gets you know maslow's hierarchy and needs i mean i think food is a very primitive thing Mm -hmm. um dining is a higher level on that and then indulging your senses is even a higher level so we're but it starts with the most primitive component and so we got to remember that that's how we survive awesome man! great way to get this thing started now where does it make sense to start sharing your story uh i I usually start the old michael dorf story in 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 wisconsin i was a frustrated musician and even that's an overreach okay because that's even making some claim of, an, of of having any musical chops whatsoever. I took two years trying to just learn Stairway to Heaven, and I couldn't on guitar. And I had three or four of my close buddies in high school who were really naturally talented at yeah. music. I sucked. They started a band. I was not invited, of course, to be in the band. But I wanted to get laid. I mean, what <laughs> what high school yeah. kid doesn't want? You know, it doesn't matter your orientation or anything. You, you want to connect with you know the other. So I started becoming the sound man. I started doing the lighting. I started promoting. And next thing you knew, I, I was the manager. And by college, it was time to put out a record. And basically, got involved in the it being the fifth wheel. And it was because I have no chops whatsoever and my friends being really, really talented. Now, that doesn't mean that they got signed to a big label, which they didn't. They were classic, part of the 95% of you know independent musicians out in the world that struggle and work hard and, and try and make it, but don't. So reflecting back at this time, what was your skill set specifically that you think most benefited the collective? I think at the time... I did have a philosophy of blowing up a balloon a little bit bigger than it should be so that you were creating perception around something and then trying to fill the the gap. So what I mean by that is I remember explaining this to a few people at the time, and again, you know, 21 years old, of we're going to go play some gigs in New York from Madison, Wisconsin, and we're going to come back to Madison and we're going to say they were sold out and they were amazing and people loved us so that we can get some bigger gigs and excitement in Madison. And when we go back to New York, we're going to say the band is so much bigger. So not Trumpian bullshit, but slight hype. Let's just call it hype. Let's yeah. call it just a little bit of, of, of supportive exaggeration. Um, but definitely not an outright lie. Yeah. Uh, just recently watched the Netflix series creating uh, Anna Dolphy. I don't know if you've heard of no, it. Or, but no. it's this whole idea of this woman who was from Russia, who, who spent some time in Germany and came to New York City and created this huge like br- like personal brand for herself. She was like a socialite, they were calling her. Yeah. And uh, she ended up going to jail because she got all these people to give her tons of money. And then they found out she had zero experience in hospitality and, and, and this hotel she was trying to create. And um, – the way that the lawyer positioned herself when they were defending her is basically saying like Frank Sinatra, when he started out, they paid women to scream and faint on the road to like, to create hype and just to, sh- to kind of 
fool people into thinking that Frank Sinatra was more than he really was. It's that idea of faking yeah. it till you make it. So I don't, I don't believe in faking it to, till you make okay. it, but I do believe that there's a, there's definitely a gray area between, you know, true fraud and, and, and even if you do do that, Frank still was great. Yes. So you still have to have the integrity of the content. There's still the band still has to be ba- you know really good if you're going to create some hype around yeah. it. You can't completely milly vanilli it all the way, right? Yes, I think it's like the difference between believing or like persuasion and manipulation. Yeah, right? if somebody's really talented and you believe in them and you're selling them, like your friends, you thought they were talented, right? So you believe and you were you you believed in it. You I, were persuading people. I saw. 75 people at the Pyramid Club in New York going crazy for the band. So if I, and maybe it wasn't a complete sellout, but in, in Milwaukee or Madison or Chicago, and I was trying to get them gigs there, and I would say, yeah, it was a sold out performance of really enthusiastic people. I, it was a little bit of, of just a borderline BS. Is it, you know, stuff that should put me in prison? I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, but you did love these guys and you did believe in them, right? Yeah. You I did mean, want look, them to be successful. I would put posters up in East Village that said, if you love Elvis Costello and the Talking Heads, you'll love Swamp Thing. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between manipulating people and persuading people is you believe in what you're persuading. You're, you're, that's the, like, the, it's like sales. Yeah. Right? I, like, again, I, I, I agree to some extent. Okay. There's a place where you, belief can also be a little bit crazy and you know i don't want to bring up politics too much mm-hmm. but you know there's some people there who are believe i think they do believe in what they're saying but yeah. it's completely distorted and and possibly crazy and 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 wrong yeah. um what's going on right now in Europe. I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, I, I hope Putin's not listening to this, but you know, like, he's one of my, my biggest fans. So. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but like, I think he's gone a little off the rails, yeah. obviously in what his actions are, but I think he believes in what he's doing. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure Trump to like all that. So I, in this case, you know, but what I did do, for example, as a promotion to get people to come to the early days of the knitting factories, I had a, a jazz show of photographs all over the walls. And the some of the photos were of the great legends of jazz, but they were dead. But my posters said Miles Davis at the Knitting Factory the month of November. And I put that out there. Or, or you know, Eric Dolphy at the Knitting Factory. Now, most people know that, okay, they're dead. They're that's this new club in the East Village has got. They don't have Miles Davis. We would get a few calls though that would say, "Hey, uh, uh, Miles Davis is appearing. When? How much?" And I'd be like, "Well, it, we have some great photographs of a great jazz photographer, and they're on the walls. So he is at the Knitting Factory all month." You're like, "Oh, you lying!" You know. <laughs> so for most people who were intelligent and saw some degree of humor in, in the somewhat provocative marketing. It was like, ah, ha, 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 ha. Wow. Interesting that they would actually say that little, little Meshugana, I'm going to go and check this place out, you know? And so, you know, what marketing is there to like kind of make you think and make you 
be curious. It's just a position. Like you, you see something that you know is not right, but it stands out because it's you know it's not right, but it grabs your attention. I mean, look at the Super Bowl ads that just you know that hit that were you know so good. I mean, having a a, a, a QR code like you know bounce on the screen. I oh mean, oh my god, I totally was a sucker. Genius, for that thing. they got me. And as soon as I did it, I was like, these sons of bitches. All right. Um, so anyways, I, I, I like marketing a lot. Yeah. I like promotion a lot. I think, you know, what I'm all, you know, that's that's what I knew I was good at. So yeah. to answer your question, like, you know, I couldn't be on stage, but could I get, could I help my friends create a vibe in a room and bring people to the room and, and get them work and make a living around the the live music experience. Yeah. And I knew I could add to so that. So you were a young guy when you started the Ning Factory, 25 years old? Yeah. Because you just, I just uh, did the math. You said you were about to turn 60. Yeah. You, know, you guys started in 86. Uh, you know, yeah. It's 35 years ago, man. So you were a young dude getting started. Reflecting back at that, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? What are oh, the lessons so you learned I, the hard way? I know there's going to be a long form podcast, but <laughs> you don't have enough time for that one. The I mean, big ones. I screwed up so many things. I mean, I'd say the biggest single mistake I made along the, the lines, I have to go back earlier for you, but like after 10 years of doing this and I was so into the idea of taking what we were doing in the room and bringing it out because the internet as a new technology was just beginning and early, early we called it webcasting and streaming, you know, um, the, 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 the calling the music content and forgetting, you know, what I loved about it, that it was just about zeros and ones and getting it out there. Like I got so obsessed by, 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 by the product and forgetting what the product was mm. and, that the thing, the, the, but not the overarching like it's, the, it's, the essence. It's the old forest for the trees thing, and and so, you know, that was a big one. I I I, I got I got unhinged, you know, and and was drinking the Kool Aid of of technology. Um, I mean, there's something to be said about embracing technology. Clearly, it worked for you, but I think it's just a matter of maybe not having a bounce. I think the way I would answer that is technology for me is a tool simply that to enhance the essence of what we wanted to do. So it's great to have the a better sound system with more modern, you know, equipment so that better microphones, all the look at look what's around us, a couple of iPhones and a Sony really cool <laughs> camera. Like that's remarkable compared to the cameras that were out there. So this is better because it's enhancing what we're doing. It's making it easier. But really what we're doing is you're asking good questions and you're trying to deliver a a, a good story and package to listeners. So the essence is the same. It's just this is an enhancement. So when when we were able to reach more people using technology, when it's easier for us to have a user experience for a ticketing you know, using a phone coming in rather than using paper tickets, whether, you know, the the whole point of sale system, all these things, lighting, you name it, air conditioning, everything in our space. If it, if technology enhances it, great. We should be all in. But it doesn't necessarily replace. You need to remember, you know, what we're doing. We're putting on a show. We're serving real food. We're We're trying to have legitimate human interaction and and create a great experience that that can't be digitized 
Yes. And I, I just, I love that idea. Technology is meant to enhance, not replace. And I think this is especially important in the restaurant industry when it comes to the human elements, uh, because we're such a human focused industry and we try to automate human elements. And I don't want to say what that does, but in your words, what does that do? Well, I mean, let's, let's just take one of the biggest examples. One of the things that happened over the last two years is we had to cover up half our face of the connection point between a waiter, waitress, and, and a customer. And the face and all those muscles around and go, even up, like, there's people I know, I, you know, you couldn't recognize just looking in their eyes. I mean, you should be able to look at, know everyone by their eyes, but, you know, sometimes you need a little extra, yeah. you know, get to their nose and the mouth, when you get to the mouth, you finally can know everybody. The mouth and the expressions and the smile and the importance of that in hospitality was really lost. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, yeah, we got around it and we all survived through it. But could we, you know, was this the next step towards full automation when we are going to really, you know, block the face for the server? And, and, and I think people really recognize they really missed that, that smile. I don't and, know about you, man. When I go out to eat, I'm not basing my decisions on what I want to eat. I'm basing my decisions on who I want to be with, you know, and that's me personally. I know that's not everybody, but I make those decisions on where I I go for the bartenders. I go for the the people who, who love their jobs Mm -hmm. and who I can connect with. I like, that's what determines where I go. And and I know that's not everybody, but it's a lot of people. No, And I think most people, you could give them the greatest food in the world, in the most beautiful setting in the world with the best wine that has ever been produced but if the service sucks Mm -hmm. it's not the best time they ever had it just won't be so you said that you lot you got distracted by the product and the thing the stuff and you forgot why you were doing it why were you doing it what brought you in originally well again i i i I, it was the aspirational of wanting to be with the band Mm -hmm. then i did early on recognize my my limitations um, I love when Gary Vee always says, you know, he knew he wasn't going to be a basketball player, even if he had a decent outside shot. But as a, you know, five foot seven, you know, Jewish guy, there's limitations to to my basketball skills. And 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 then when I became 30 years old and my knees started to hurt, then it was really clear I'm not, you know, made out to be a basketball player. I, I knew I was a really good promoter. I'm pretty good with my math skills. I know how to sell stuff. Like, you know, there's the DNA that's in me. And by recognizing that, I knew I wanted to be around music, but I needed to be the venue. I needed to be the room. I needed to, you know, I thought for a while maybe the, the venue for me was the a vinyl disc and a record. But I, I, I knew I needed to be connected to the the creation of music and helping it get heard by people. I, that became clear to be my role. Um, on some level, by by recognizing that, and especially enjoying the live side of it, then I started to dissect into that a bit and going, well, what is being the medium in this in this equation? You know, what what does it really mean to be the owner of the stage that these great artists get on and then interact with their fans and how do we create in this as in a role of being the medium the best medium possible now early on i didn't you know have the greatest bathrooms because i couldn't afford the greatest and cleanest bathrooms i didn't have the i had no working air conditioning for the first year 
you know, so I had some real limitations of capital to to do. But I, as as we grew and as I heard, whether it was a musician yelling at me or a, a, a fan yelling at me, the importance of all of these components around the medium. Um, John Zorn, you know, an artist that played a lot, you know, 35 years ago, uh, was probably one of my harshest critics, but maybe one of my most important mentors at the time going, dude, I don't think he ever used the word dude, but, you know, I forgot what he would call me, but, you know, he'd be like Dorf. You know, I need, and we all need, and he really felt like a spokesman for the East Village jazz, you know, avant-garde community. Dorf, I need more water. We need we need more water backstage. You can't do what you do, Dorf, unless you get some water backstage. And he would explain it. He'd explain it once. If I screwed up the second time, he'd bitch slap me hard. But like, you know, um, he he made me he reinforced my role as being a medium. You know, I need to create the greatest place for a musician to do their thing on the stage, and then. I need to create a great space for the patron to absorb it. And when the fan is is not obstructed, like, you know, if, if the audience is behind a column and they can't see, if they're sweating profusely, you know, if they can't get a drink, if, if they're not having a good time, they're not showing the love back to the show. And if the artist wasn't fed very well and is thirsty and the lighting is is bothering them, and the sound is really bad, or the stage they're feeling like is going to collapse, they're not giving it their all. Yeah. But if all of those components are coming together, and the, the synchronicity and, and, the, and the energy exchange is happening, and the vibe is right, both sides are feeding each other, and it's becoming a better experience. And so my job, my role, my only role, is to make that experience as great as possible. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, listening to you talk, I can't help but think of the role of a host, a restaurant host. And some of the best restaurant tours out there are hosts. Mm-hmm. They create the medium. They they are Danny Meyer is a beautiful yep. example of this. You, you arguably say his role in the in the restaurant was a host. He was there yep. to basically be there for his team, the people, the stars, the talent the servers, the chefs, the people that were shining. And he was creating a medium, a place where the, the, the guest to come and to connect with the stars. And he knew his lane. Yeah. He said, I'm going to be here. I'm going to create the medium to bring these two groups of people together. Absolutely. And enlightened hospitality, yeah. which I'm sure you talk about mm-hmm. on this show a lot, because you know one of the greatest articulations of exactly this thesis. And he nailed it, and he nailed it early. I've sold more of his books than I've sold of my books for sure. <laughs> Number Part, one most recommended book on the show. It, it's, <laughs> it, it's, just, it's, it's impossible not to. And we, we, we make every employee, when they're onboarded, we're, they're given a copy of Setting the Table. Yeah. It just is so important. And Danny recognized it as a, in the restaurant space. We tried to take his thesis – of enlightened hospitality and bring it into the concert business with, with city winery. Yeah. So you are saying that one point in time, at some point you started to lose sight of the fact that your role, your lane is the medium to bring these two parties together. The, the person who wants to be entertained, who wants the experience and the talent, right? Um, you lost sight of that and you were focusing on the things, the, the audio, the, the, the and, and, and the brand and the ego, you know, I think for me, you know, in the late, ego's a, that's a, 
that's dangerous. Well, again, I forgot where my role was. My role as a medium is not to think that the medium itself is the message or is is a more important brand, you know, and that I just wanted Michael Dorff and the Knitting Factory. We could go out there on just uh, and and take a record and just get it out to all the far reaches of the world and in any format whatsoever. And 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 it just I got so obsessed by doing that that I I did lose the 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 desire and and the the love of. The, those those sweaty great evenings, you know, in a avant-garde small room, um, and and then the interaction, the one-on-one, the the true. This you know, is exactly and, why I travel across yeah. the country to do these interviews because there's something to be said about in person. There's something you're talking about the communication, the face, the wrinkle. Yeah. I think it goes beyond that. It goes beyond like endorphins, chemicals uh-huh. are happening. Things are that we are just starting to realize the low road of communication. And what's the root of endorphin? What's that? What's the root of endorphin? I don't know. Dorf. Ah. Uh, just, just saying. <laughs> I like what you Sorry. did there. No, it was good. Um, so, man. I, I want to. I, I'm sure there's so many lessons here that we could pull back layers on, and because you had a solid, what was it, 2000? Or sorry, 1986, 2003. Uh, what is that? 26 years? No, 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 no. Uh, 16. What's that? 16. Thank yeah. you. Uh, 16 years. Um, any other key lessons? I want to move on to Sid yeah. Weiner, obviously. But what from this great experience you had? Well, I would look at the 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 chance to do it again when I re looked back at at the knitting factory as a business. I, uh, I, I didn't know how to work as well um, at all, at, uh, certainly while in the knit with my staff, with my key executive partners, with, 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 um, with almost everybody. Like I, 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 I didn't know how to really run a company. Um, I, I, I learned some business lessons. You know, I learned a few you know, tricks of the trade. I certainly grew a Rolodex, um, but I, I didn't, I wasn't friends with everyone at the end. Like there was, there were, there were a lot of pain, painful relationships that, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't value along the way. And, you know, in looking when I, when I got a chance to start over, which is one of the biggest blessings of, of my, of my life, I looked at, well, if I do it again, what am I going to, how am I going to do it different? How am I going to treat my staff? Yeah. How, how am I going to involve the, the, the core team of my, you know, cause I can't do this without my team. I'm happy you're going here. Cause when I first, when your name first came across my radar and I started looking into who you are, the history of who you are, I saw music venue person and winery in a few years in between. I was like, how the hell, like, how do you go from that to this in and knowing a little bit about wine, because I was an assistant winemaker for like a year just to like learn that world, that's a hard leap to make. You can't do that alone, you know. So like the the thought I had is he must be really good at bringing people together and surrounding himself with talent uh, to be able to execute. Because you went from doing what you're doing, absolutely uh, music production or venue produ- or creating that venue to producing making wine. That that takes years of sucking at to get to the point where you can actually put something out. Right. So like you, there's no way you did that by yourself. Right. For so sure. This is a great segue. I, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you the fun story in the segue. Um, 
you know, in in two thousand and three, when I I finally got out of the knitting factory, and it was it was not a a, a, a love fest leaving, and you know, I, I basically, you know. I got diluted out by investors. I call them vulture capitalists. And, you know, it was, I was very naive in my deal making when I was raising money. And so it was, I wanted to really do something fresh. It was post 9 11. And I felt like I had a different calling. I wanted to, you know, like Voltaire and Candide, like go back to the garden. There was something I needed to do to make a big break. And I got a chance to make a barrel of wine in California with a great winemaker, David Tate at Ridge. Um, he, he was working on the Montebella um, product, one of the great, you know, Cabernet, you know, wines in California. And and drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, it was so fun doing it. And my friend Dan Bodner did the artwork and we made wine. I'm handing it to my friends. And it was just such a fun thing to do and learn and you know i'd always collected a little bit of wine and and enjoyed drinking i mean i i'm a lush i like all kinds of beverages mostly wine um but making it really opened up my eyes to the nuance of certain flavors and and just it, it gave me greater depth to my my wine consumption by making it mm-hmm. and so i wanted to make wine and I brought my family and my wife out to Oregon. I love the Willamette Valley, one of my favorite spots. And I love, I'm, I'm probably, if, if, if one of your questions come up, like if you're on a desert island, you have to pick one guy, you know, it would be Pinot Noir. So, I love Pinot. Willamette Valley, second time there with my wife. And now we're bringing our kids. My sons at the time were like seven years old. We had done a tasting at noon. Um, they're all asleep in the back of the car. We're driving in the Dundee Hills. I saw a for sale sign. I stop. I go to the to the sign. I'm looking at the beautiful hillside. I say, well, why take a photo of the sign? May as well just call. They're all asleep in the car. Of course, it's Oregon, so the person picked up the phone. They told me the 30 acres are available, what the price was. In my mind, I'm like, if I sell my apartment, and I, <laughs> we can move here. Yeah. So I get back in the car, and I go, everybody, family meeting. And they're like, well, then they're groggy kids. And my wife, like, why do you wake me? You know, and of course, you know, we had, we, my wife and I had some, you know, Pinot at the previous yeah. tasting. So, you know, she's a little groggy. And I'm like, all right, family meeting, everybody. Daddy has decided we're going to move here. We're going to buy this. See that house? There's no winery attached. I just talked to the people, but this is, we're going to move here. I'm going to get into the wine business. Were there vines already? Yeah. Okay. 20 acres of beautiful Pinot, Dundee Hills. Got it. And my kids in unison. Now, remember, they grew up in a household from jazz and, and, you know, New York City in unison because they're twins, said, no fucking way, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, How my, old are they at this point? They're seven years old. Okay, I love and it. my <laughs> wife, who's always mad at me for something, and in particular my kids cursing all the time, basically <laughs> says, excellent intonation, young man. You know, no fucking way, honey, are we moving here. So this is a classic necessity breeds invention kind of thing. So, you know, went back home we're in new york and now i'm like how am i gonna do a wine i want to make wine i'm not doing long island i'm not gonna go up to the finger lakes gotta be in new york city and just started thinking and learn you know doing some due diligence and realizing and every time i'd start visiting wineries whether it was in europe or in california i was like 
in the cellar or in the winery, I'd be like, it'd be so cool to put a show on in here. So my instinct to put on a show kind of just got mashed up with with the idea of yeah. winemaking. And I love that. And um, one other thing I love from the story, too, is this mentality of the most successful people I talk to or that do exactly what you say. They don't say, I can't do that. They say, how can I do this? And they take away the no's. And all this, so your kids were the first no, no fucking way, dad. <laughs> and then all the other no's you got before them, but you started asking, well, how can I do it? And let's be honest, Venticulture is completely different than, I mean, it's a the, the art of Venticulture is a, a skill set in itself for sure i mean that that's basically like the starting point of making wine obviously but you can do it with just the grapes and just getting the juice but right? you know as they say wine is made in the vineyard yeah so it starts with good vineyards but even if i was able to buy the greatest grapes which we started doing but i needed a great winemaker mm-hmm. so you know higher number one was david lecompte you know and he's still with me to this day um, great French winemaker that I was able to luckily find and convince that, hey, I want to bring grapes from California, <laughs> the best Napa cabs and Pinots from the Sonoma Coast and Willamette Valley, and I want to ship them to New York, and I want to make wine right here in Manhattan. And he's like, you know, you're fucking crazy, but why not? And he came on board. And then, you know, I hired a real operations person because, again, knew we yeah. you can't serve a lot of wine without really good food. And, again, I need a really good chef. So to answer the early question, uh, you know, all these positions, winemaking, which I don't know, you know, jack shit. I think I'm an okay cook, but you don't want to have my food. Like, in a, yeah. so we, I need an expert you know, you need experts. So let's let's bookmark this right yeah. here because I want to flip back a couple of pages. And you were talking about uh, the like one of the biggest lessons you learned. And I'm trying to find my notes to see if I can't use your words. I'll paraphrase. You said that you, you didn't recognize the importance of the relationships and the people, the leadership and partners, your relationship with partners. Um, so let's go back to that. Yeah. Talk about really paint the, the picture of how you treated people, the things you're doing wrong with your people, the ways that you, maybe you have resentment and how you handle the situation with the past partner, anything like that to kind of pick the, to paint the picture of where you were. Well, I think it was more in, you know, you, it actually ties both conversations now together. I mean, a, a, a humble respect for the expertise that, the 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 others have like i i clearly recognized my role as not a musician and i respected musicians but when it came to running the business i always felt better smarter more apt than every single other person in the room um and and while yeah maybe i i'm pretty good with excel um you know am i a good do i have good customer forward smiles when I'm bartending and and the answer is no and you know do I know what goes into mixed drinks and 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 over pouring versus like no inventory control no I'm not any good at but I thought I did I and I you know as a 100% sole proprietor you know you you and young and immature you you don't handle yourself as well as when you know you're a little older a little more mature and and you realize you can Show someone how to do something and learn to work with them to 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 grow themselves and ultimately become really good at it. Or recognize you don't have any idea how to do it. You actually want to show, you want to learn how to do it with them. I mean, I love going into the kitchen and dealing and talking with chefs. 
because I want to bring home some skills, you know, but I, they, they know I respect them tremendously. I think in, you know, the winemaking case, you know, I'm in awe of the, 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 the both instinct and the, the understanding, the, 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 the learned education of David Lecomte, who's, you know, grew up in the, in the Rhone Valley in France and is, was at Chapoutier when he was like five years old, you know, like his ability to, to taste and to, to know what wood combination works with that grape and toward, you know, give it a, a yeah. body. Like, so it was a, it's, understanding the respect that needs to be shown and and legitimate not just fake promoted respect but but sincere respect and and that goes to servers it goes to you know uh uh sound tech you know all these positions and yeah. so you know I, I, look the biggest thing was when i was thinking about how do i want to do the new business Moving forward, one of the first things I did, which is really rare for somebody in the music business and frankly, even in the restaurant space, a, 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 a single restaurant, we did a company offsite right away, just like JP Morgan and Citibank. And, you know, and we, we went offsite and I studied what some of these offsite retreat type of play, things do and really started what is our mission, everyone? And let's yeah. let's come to this together. Let's yeah. all agree as to what our mission is. Yeah. Let's all agree as you know, and, 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 and that helped. I bring everyone into creating our value system. So let's bookmark Mac, excuse me, let's bookmark that. Go back again to the things you were sharing with us because I want to pull back some more layers. Yeah. So there's gold here. So what I'm hearing and I'm reading between the lines, you weren't really patient with your staff. If somebody you know, you weren't willing to work with them to build them to get them to where you wanted them to be. It was probably more of a command and control, you know, my way or the highway. And, it, and you were steering the ship. And if you weren't on the ship, if you weren't like, you know, if you weren't on board, get off board. That kind of mentality is kind of what I'm, I'm pulling. Yeah. From. I mean, look, I think about that still to this day. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I want it, everyone to come to the same decision and, 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 uh, you know, it is my way or the highway yeah. still. There's truth to that, yeah. But you you, you want everyone to come to your way. Mm. So how do you get people to come to your way? You So you were pushing before and maybe not pulling. Yeah. I mean, look, at I think look, pushing and pulling when it's coming from one direction is, is essentially the same thing. It's, you know, I'm pretending to <laughs> but, you know, so, like, it, it's a very subtle thing and part of that comes with age and some of it comes with having you know been burnt and learned the lesson and understanding what the facial expression is on, on somebody and you know the eq you know component of our of our of of our human interactions yep um yeah, I mean, I think it, a lot of it just comes with time. Yeah. Now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to start to unpackage all these things I just bookmarked because I'm excited <laughs> to get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage you need to to rely and trust technology more than ever before and dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive dramatic impacts you can make 
on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Okay, we're back. And you set up the conversation really well. We started talking about the things you're doing in the past um, and the things you started doing right the second time around. And one of the first things you did is you you knew the importance of communicating the mission, the vision, the values, and you and you knew the importance of getting everybody on board with that. So you you had a retreat. So yeah, although, pick up the conversation there. I'm glad you said it that way. Um, I refrained from using the word retreat. Year one, I was like, "What? Am I, what do we call it? City, the city winery retreat?" And I was like, "Wait, a city winery retreat? Retreat? What the <laughs> hell? What a dumb word!" Retreats go in the wrong direction. The whole point of my <laughs> yeah. taking a day off with everybody is to go to the mountaintop. And we literally we went up to the Gunks in in New York, you know, Minnewaska State Park, and climbed a little bit of some cliffs and stuff. And we're like, I want to show people to the mountaintop. It's where we're going forward, not backwards. So what you call it? So we call it base camp, and okay. I've been doing it every year. And base camp is such a better metaphor because base camp in mountaineering, which I love doing i don't do it as crazily as i did but is a place where you talk to your team you look at your route you figure out how you're going to get to the top you know what is what is it going to take to get to the summit as a team you got to eliminate any weak links you know and you're doing it from a place of safety you know you're doing it from a a, a place where you can see where you want to go how are we going to get there plan the route to get there um, but from a place of safety and doing it together. Yeah. So it's a, just such a better metaphor. And so it's been base camp ever since. So you left uh, the knitting factory 2003. You spent some time just, I don't know what you if you're just floating, enjoying life, doing what, but when did you really know that you were going to open a winery? When did that get cemented? Like when did the process start? So in 2002, I got invited by the LMDC, the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, to put in a proposal for a new performance art center at the World Trade Center. Okay. It was after 9-11. They had done a, a survey. Two of the top five uh, memories of the community of the World Trade Center culturally were two shows I produced. One was a New Orleans day with the Neville brothers and the meters, and it was a great day. And the other was a Latin day with Los Lobos, Los Van Van, um, Los Lonely Boys, I think it was a Los Love Fest, and um, you know, ten thousand people on the plaza. So I got invited to put a proposal together, and it, and it, I, where I was going in my head, and it took like six, seven months was, and my tagline for that was a downtown Carnegie Hall with a great wine list. So it wasn't a winery yet, but I was connecting 
a more affluent, more focused sit-down experience with wine. And I knew that there was a cultural and a wine connection that was needed and missing in the world, in New York in particular. Um, but it wasn't yet a winery. When after after the Willam and, and anyways, it took it's a it's a it's a travesty on some level. It, it should be a Spike Lee documentary because they're just now building the Ronald Perlman Cultural Arts Center twenty something years later. Millions and millions of dollars was spent on on studies and surveys and stuff to get to where it is, and and it's just too bad. Um, there was a opportunity. I shifted my gears and went from thinking about doing something on the World Trade site, left the knitting factory, and really started putting my focus on actually trying to build a performing arts center on on Wall Street. I had found a bank I was thinking of, and that's where this tagline like shifted. And then I happened to go to the Willamette Valley and go, you know what? I, I love the idea of wine so much. I, I want to make wine. And so it shifted from a pure wine list to an actual winery. Um, and just thought that that was such a bizarre thing i love the idea of making wine you know and no and my joke will always was yeah when people say where are you gonna get the grapes i go central park of course you know <laughs> but like you know as as a wine fan you know you know terroir is really important you know terroir being the french expression of all the various weather and environmental ingredients that make certain grapes grow better in certain areas and so for my concept, it was perfect. You know, I'll get Riesling from the Finger Lakes in New York. I'm going to get Napa from, you know, uh, Cabernet from the Napa Valley. I'm going to get Syrah from the Walla Walla in Washington, you know, or Mendocino. I can go to where the particular variety grows the best in mm-hmm. this country. Um, and I was like, this is great. This yeah. is perfect. So one of the things I love about your story is like, and I was curious if you kind of figured it out, like how you came about this, but you stayed in your lane. You, you, you got away from what you were doing. You, you set out on this new project, this new path, but you stayed in your lane and recognizing like, I can't just walk away from music and entertainment. That's what I spent 16 years building my network in and building a skill set there. I might as well leverage that, but I'm, I have this new passion of wine and, I, that that's, that's a new shiny object, but how do I do both? Right. And I, I don't want to put words into your mouth or kind of write the narrative, but the, is what was going on there? Were you saying like, if I'm going to be successful, I got to hang on to what yeah. got me here and combined it with the new interest. Well, there, what was was a, there was a couple of practical components as well as some sort of feeling like it was an innovative approach that again, back to the first comments we made If it. If, if, if you don't think it works for yourself, it probably is not going to work for others. Mm-hmm. So I looked at, well, what, what do I want? What do I want out of an urban winery? You know, I, I guess as a patron, I'd love to own my barrel of wine or I'd like to participate in the winemaking, but you know, how dirty am I going to be able to get my hands? Like how, you know, how capital intensive do I want to allocate resources to to the winemaking equipment i think maybe the public doesn't want to go in for the full barrel maybe they you know so i started thinking about it in that way i started being very practical as well about just being in the wine business you know there's an old saying it's it's really easy to to make wine it's really hard to sell it so as everyone's telling me are you sure you want to just do an urban winery? You know, I mean, it's not going to be the easiest to sell it. So I was like, well, are you right? How am I going to sell this stuff? Um, that's when I started getting a little more practical. And then real practicality hits when it's like, wow, rent has gone up a lot in New York since the last time I looked. 
And 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 by the way, if, if I'm going to go into this with all, you know, I don't have enough money myself. You know, I'm going to raise money. So now I got to raise money. I got to have real pro forma. So what what do I know? I know how to fill up a room with people. Hmm. That's the hard part of being a restaurateur is filling the room. Exactly. Yeah, and that's so, what you're good at. So, but I had it was about practical. Yeah. I, uh, being practical, I, I I I knew I could fill the room up with somebody who wanted to see a show. But how do you how how how, how am I going to be able to combine it and sell them wine? And 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 uh, so the it you know the the old saying in entertainment is is the, the profits are in the popcorn. Mm-hmm. And in this case, my popcorn was going to be wine, and 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 so it it wasn't like bells went off or you know that that synapse moment and all of a sudden like there it is yeah. I figured it was like it, it there was a there was a real process of thinking you know and and being slapped around a little bit by either my kids and wife to then my friends to the the reality of the the money and so it penciled out really looking at a size room that I wanted to to get and so there's there was a lot of real practicality. I don't want to keep going back to that word, but like it, you know, refining the business plan in the beginning was all right. I'm, if I'm taking outside money, I'm going to really need to have EBITDA and 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 a bottom line. And so, as aspirational as the urban winery side is, I gotta I gotta make sure we got, are getting bodies through the room. Yeah. And so I'll gravitate to what I know really well. Another thing about choosing to stay in New York is this is where your network is. This is where your people are. This is where you have roots. And that's one of the lessons I've learned on this show is if you're going to go do something, you cannot do it alone and go to where you have roots because that's where you're going to be able to pull people in to help you. So one of the things I'm curious about where we are right now, this is the OG location, mm-hmm. correct? It's, it's a, not the old guard location. It's, no, it's not. No. So where was the the original one? It was on Varick Street. Okay. okay. Yeah. So how long? So th- th- I think I counted all together twelve venues in like seven cities. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And we have five new ones coming this year. Okay. So I guess what I'm I'm saying, like, if if you don't to get money, you need a track record of showing people I know how to do this. You do have a track record of showing that you can pull people together at a venue. Is that what you were leveraging? <sighs> yes and no. I, I would say. You know, the track record of the knitting factory was as a really cool it was a brand it was a cool club did it have a reputation for being a money maker you know in in uh, no um it 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 had a good brand it had a it had a reputation that was mixed um uh, you know people always talked about the old knit you know, which was the days on Houston Street and maybe when we first moved to Leonard Street. Before the bathrooms were nice. Um, <laughs> but even when the bathrooms got nice on Leonard Street, there was that was still old knit up until a point. Again, when, when I got lost in technology and started raising money in 98, 99, and 2000, that's when I think there is a transition to what would be the new knit. And then I was involved to 03, and then when it was moved into other people's hands and then it moved to Brooklyn and... You know, it's it's a it's definitely a different knit. Now I'm grateful it's still alive. It's my first child, and 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 it's alive, and it you know, fine. It's it's off and doing things that I wouldn't necessarily approve of, yeah. but I'm glad my child's alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just super grateful. You know, I was able to have a second chance and and create and birth. You know, yeah. twelve going on seventeen new kids. So. 
you bring the team together. You go on this journey, on this this mission, on this hike to the peak of a mountain, right? Yeah. Uh, to share the mission and what's going on. W- reflecting back at that time, is what you were selling then to your team what it is today? Are you? It's exactly the same. That's beautiful. So it's exactly the same. So, you know, on one hand, I brought a whiteboard to the meeting, to the summit, to to have everyone collectively co-create what we are doing but secretly and this is that push pull from the conversation before i had the mission statement written out underneath the paper um the best story is fast forward five years to uh the next base camp and i had under a layer two layers of t-shirt the words indulge your senses on a t-shirt I had actually printed it onto a big uh, photo book that was under everybody's tables, 100, 100 chairs in a room. I had a facilitator from the Hard Rock Cafe working on what mantras are and what we do. We then started whiteboarding it in the room, and we got to throw in words. Indulge was really collectively thrown out there. We were very close to the group all agreeing that it should be Indulge Your Passions. And then Raul, who was head of sales at the time, threw out in senses. It's a sensory experience. You know, and in, in, indulge your senses. And everyone agreed, indulge your senses. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I was s- sort of softly leading everyone, but it was, it was, it was more pulled yeah. than pushed. And everyone's like, yes, indulge your senses. So then I take off my button down, and the first T-shirt I had on was sell more. And I was like, damn, I thought you guys were going to come up with sell more. Because I always, when I pop my head into a meeting, I always go sell more. Yeah. You know, so I, but, and that got a laugh, which, you know, <laughs> you got to get laughs yeah. at these things too. But then I took dad off and it was indulge your senses. Wow. And it's almost like, what are those, uh, those people who like lead you? Uh, oh, there's a name for this type of person. You see them, like they like, like they say, they, they think of something, right? And then they have it like written in a book. What's that? What are those people called? Mentalists. Mentalists. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, and I, I, I get blown away by mentalists. They're crazy. They scare They're the crap so out of me. good. <laughs> yeah. They're, I mean, great magician, mentalists, yeah. illusionists. Yeah. Those guys, it blows me away. Yeah. You know, but it's like it, a mentalist moment in a sense. It, it was, yeah, I mean, again, it was maybe 101 mentalism, yeah. you know, but. Uh, but what's, what's the power of that, though? Like, what's the power well, of letting, of bringing everybody in on it? All 100 people felt like they came up with indulge your senses and you know we're we're basically singing the mantra for the year together and, and, and you're not pushing it on them it's us it's and we. then hopefully those same hundred infiltrate you know into the 600 in the company and then the few years later those who remain and we are hopefully yeah. have a good you know role of of, of of not too much attrition um you know that that they tell their the next generation. I was there when we created indulge. Like you know, you want to just have them spread the love, and and every year at this base camp, and we just completed one. Really, really important to have everyone feel like they're coming out of this thing with their volume switch gone from ten to eleven. You know, mm-hmm. I, we reiterate all the things we always do. We we go over our. Danny Meyer's core non-negotiable core values, you know, and we, you know, that was a year we studied his book. And mm-hmm. like we do these things that some of them are very elemental, very important, 
we talk about where we're going and the path to you know our our future we review you know best practices and all of these things and there's classic team building exercises but at the ultimate result the ultimate desire is to have everyone feel like they are adding to the 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 company they're they're helping mold who we are and what our what our true values are all about and then take it back and how do we incorporate incorporated into our daily culture um and and you know at this point you know as we keep growing as a business and you know we were about 1400 employees pre-pandemic we're not even over a thousand again you know i'm sure this is a classic story you know when we get to several thousand people like one of my you know i I can't touch and, and feel you know everybody yeah but if we can get 100 150 you know, managers at base camp to to take that magic, that that special sauce, and bring it down to all the people they touch, and and in turn to the, you know, then everyone in the company hopefully will will you know yeah. feel like they're participating you, in you, what we're about. You just spit out some very specific numbers, a hundred and hundred and fifty. Why that? Why why is that the number that you're saying? If we can get to a hundred or hundred and fifty, then we can scale from there. That's an interesting um, thing, and that. Uh, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm all about audience, I guess, and numbers. Um, our our main venues are 350 capacity, and I say that after that, you lose intimacy. You know, and to me, the definition of intimacy is being able to look at someone in the eyes, and and the audience being able to look at the eyes of the of the performer, or in the case of a private party, the parents. You know, looking at their guests of the wedding or the corporate CEO talking to the, so three fifty is a number that to me defines intimacy. Then a hundred, hundred and fifty, it's gonna sound is more intimate, duh. But like, that's where you can really start communicating and getting feedback, mm-hmm. and and actually where someone could raise feel more comfortable raising a hand and because and, you might know that exchanging person, right at that number so i don't know if if it was just happenstance but the that number 150 is Dar, is dunbar's number uh, are you familiar with dunbar's number so no. it's, it's this number that um the scientist dunbar figured out and he was comparing the size of the frontal lobe with like the total like surface area of like the skull or something like that any in all primates there's this ratio between how big the frontal lobe is and how big like the surface area in the brain i can't remember exactly what they're comparing what the ratio is but there's this number called dunbar's number in chimpanzees it's 50 and different primates have different numbers but in humans it's 150 which means we can handle about 150 relationships meaningful relationships and beyond that it just becomes too much so back before 10,000 years ago, we were in hunter-gatherer bands of usually no more than 150. If you go into Africa and you look at chimpanzees, they start to fragment at 50. And the, the numbers support. So this this idea that if you really want, and I believe this, that if we want to go into the future creating better cultures, we need to look to our past to figure out how we existed before the agricultural revolution and how do we, re- we recreate that in business. So I was curious if you picked up on that number and that was a specific No, it was reason. more like Anything more than 150 hotel rooms starts costing a lot of money. <laughs> so no, but I do think that 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 the think when you're scaling, like how do I keep it intimate? How do we keep yeah. it like? How do we keep tribes or bands of people together in an intimate way? That's interesting. And keeping it below yeah. 150 is one way to do that. Yeah. I believe. I don't know for sure. I, I think. Look, I didn't know that, and and it 
maybe for me was more on the 150 hotel room cost, but, but, but it is a number that becomes a manageable number that through just my own now experience is, is come, coincidence, to, our, I guess. come to our number. But, well, I don't, it could be coincidence. It could, or just it could be, be a real number. Look that, at, <laughs> what, what's the temperature of the middle of the earth? It's 54 degrees. What's the best temperature to keep wine? You know, 54 <laughs> degrees. Like some of it is just like, well, it just, Where's the best place? There's to, patterns. That there's keep patterns out yeah, there. So I sure. mean, 150 makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Another one of those patterns is the 80-20 rule, right? I don't need to get into numbers yeah. and patterns right now. Yeah. One thing I am really curious about, and I, I hope we can get into, is your business model. And you kind of alluded to it earlier, like the money's in the popcorn, mm-hmm. right? So you're creating this this business model centered around wine and music and venue, right? But where are your profit? Like, how are you profitable? How What makes your business profitable? And what can we learn? Well, it's all the food and beverage. Yeah. I mean, you know, every restaurant's going to, you know, tell you that. And and uh, and what's more, what's more lucrative between food and beverage, it's beverage. And what's more profitable in, within beverage, you know, the the soda, you know, that you add syrup and water together or, you know, the really high end cognac and, and, you know, there's way better margin in that, that food and food, food costs are up and it, it takes artists and, and craftspeople to make really good food. Um, but you know, the, the alcohol is the, is the, is, is the biggest margin booster in any business. Yeah, but you're not just selling alcohol. You're, you're going about it a different way. And, and so we, we, we make even extra margin by, by making the wine on site and saving a lot of shipping costs and doing a lot of wine by the glass through our proprietary you know, keg systems and, and on tap. Um, so our margins are very good. Um, and our wine is even better. And then there's a big thing we're launching really excited excited about is our uh, we're launching in a few months is our reusable bottle program for off-premise sale which is absolutely unique to our situation because we're this decentralized winery every one of our locations is a bonded winery you know bonded with the ttb you know we we are able to make wine we can sell it in in these kind of formats so we're we're able to actually you know, create this reusable bottle program and really encourage true, you know, interaction, if you will, between the off-premise and the on-premise, which is really rare. And and as we've studied recycling, you know, we look at we love when someone buys a bottle of wine and goes home with it, or we ship a bottle of wine to someone's home as well. It is an extension of of the restaurant, you know, side of what we do, and great, fantastic. Nothing. There's, you know, the the buzz in in the wine industry is DTC, direct to consumer. So if you can have someone leave your restaurant with a bottle of wine, it's why the state, you know, during you know the pandemic, were supportive of people mm-hmm. taking home wine, and and frankly, why New York's governor right now is possibly making it into law, which. It's a little unfortunate for us because that was an exclusivity that yeah. we as a winery had. Yeah. But whatever, it's okay for all my fellow you know <laughs> yeah. restaurateurs. I know Danny Meyer needed it, yeah. um, but uh, you know the idea of being able to actually do something truly recyclable was was great. And um, I'm not sure where why I was going there, except for you know yeah the margins are in when we're making wine and we can we can make high quality wine and deliver it for good value. You know, at, 
not to mention and maybe save the planet by doing it in a more you know environmentally friendly way we're really thrilled about being able to do what we do and that's why the music is a way to bring people in you know the private party is a way to bring people in um, we think our food is is an attraction but obviously it's more in our case more of a a supplement to the consumption on site um so we give most of our box office money, and most of that ticket price is going directly to the artist. Um, and that's the case in the entertainment industry. It's why in the, even in film, like the profits in popcorn, because the, the, the ticket price is going back to the filmmakers, um, which is great you know, for, for, for the artists. Yeah. Um, our focus then, being on the higher margin, the food and beverage, allows us then to also have better service because – you know, we're really focusing on what that consumer is doing when they're in their seat. Yeah. And that makes us, you know, focused in a different way than the big concert promoters or when you're going to Broadway or another entertainment experience. I mean, although we're seeing it in sports, a higher end, you know, sort of food offerings outside of the seating and VIP, you are getting some service, but it's still not at the same level that, you know, we're trying to approach the, the, the consumption at the seat. Yeah. So 2008 was your first location. When did you start to scale? How much time? 2012, 2012. I opened Chicago. So four years. What was the evolution like in that four years? Take us through what you think contributed to your success, the launching pad to bring it to where it is today in that first four years. Well, Number one, we were profitable, and so I was starting to return the investment to the friends and family that were investing. So if we were not profitable, it would certainly have made the story to the new investors for Chicago way harder, if Mm -hmm. not impossible. Mm -hmm. So number one, proof of concept, but not just that people want to come and see a show and that our wine isn't, you know, terrible, but that the concept is actually generating a bottom line, right? EBITDA. My nickname in this office is EBITDORF. You know, like, what is EBITDA for those who don't know? It's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Okay. Which really is a, 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 a an accounting term for cash flow. And when you have positive EBITDA, you have positive cash flow, meaning after expenses, you're making money. Mm-hmm. And so we were making money. We were, and, and most multiples, most most transactions in the restaurant space, most people, the investors, they're all looking for a multiple of EBITDA. So if you're making, you know, ten dollars of EBITDA, that you're getting some number of what that you know multiple is, a multiple of that ten dollars. And and not that my focus is on the valuation and any of those things, but I do. This is what outside money looks at and so you know we need to also look at it if we want to you know use people's money yeah people are investing in their what they're going to get in return right and they need to know that there's cash flow they need to know that that you're a safe horse to bet on a real business so how did you did you start off profitable were you profitable from day day one? one okay yeah so if you're breaking down your business model, if you're looking at like what works about what we do, what are the lessons there? What can we try to replicate in our own businesses? What knowledge do you have to share about being profitable? Well, I, you know, I say this a lot. You know, the business plan was built, the model. So you have all kinds of great ideas, but the plan needs to start in Excel, not in Word or in PowerPoint. Um, and I don't mean to give Microsoft any extra props and they Google you know, Sheets, but but like <laughs> start in a spreadsheet. Yeah. Make sure 
it works out. You know, think through every one of those expenses. Then you can play with it all you want. You know, but make sure the the math actually works. Um, and 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 I, you know, again, having lost money at the knitting factory and and you know living under the desk for the first two years there. I mean, I was doing it for other reasons than yeah. money. And not that I'm doing City Winery purely for money, not at all. You know, there's much higher reasons why I like doing what I'm doing. But money, you know, making sure we're profitable is a critical component for for us to remain solid. Mm -hmm. It's how we got through the pandemic, and it's, frankly, how we're going to keep growing. Yeah, at first glance, though, looking at your business, it's a high-touch, people-dependent business. You have a lot of skill skills required to pull off what you're pulling off, right? You're one part events, you know, uh, you're uh, a venue, right? That's, that's a certain skill set to like draw people in You're one part food. That's a skill set where you got to have a, a chef that knows what they're doing. And you're also paying to make the wine. That's a whole nother skill yeah. set. So at first glance, you're a money machine. Like you're eating up a lot of expenses because those are all people that need to be behind that. 30, right? 32% of our revenues is, is payroll. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm thinking is like, you have a very hungry beast of a, a restaurant here. Cause you need, you have so many people that are necessary to execute it well. So at first glance, it's like, where are the margins then? Right. Because if you have, if you're so dependent on people, which I don't think is a bad thing, don't get me wrong. I think we need to create opportunities. Well, and for I people. think in particular now today, if you, you businesses are going, they can have a great idea and they can have a great location and they can have really good food or had good food. If they can't get people in there to operate, they can't, they go out of business. And, and so, you know, thinking and understanding how to, how to keep people happy who are working for you. And, and it's not all about money. You know, there are a whole bunch of components, Mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but you need to keep those people happy and money is a, is a certainly a big piece yeah. of it. So is it because of because your spaces are big enough that you can do the volume? I think I've heard this once before and it's there's truth to it. It's whether you're opening a 10 seat restaurant or a 300 seat restaurant, you got to do the same amount of work. So you don't want to limit yourself. You don't want to you don't want the the amount of seats to be what restricts your potential profit. So you have 300 seat you know venues. So is is it because you can do so much volume? Is that well, we're way more than three hundred seats, and I mean we're three hundred and fifty seats in the in the music space. Yeah, we have another one hundred and fifty seats in the restaurant. We have another one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty in the second room, the loft. We have, you know, somewhere between seventy five and one hundred seats in the various outside bars. You know, before getting into the restaurant, and then some of our seasonal places, like out here, we have fifty seats in the summer. Um, you know, Chicago has 150 outside seats on top of everything. So it's a lot of moving parts. You know, there's, there's, there's some advantages to, to bulk and there's obviously some disadvantages. Um, net, net, we're not as profitable in these big flagship locations, 35,000 square feet, you know, millions of dollars of rent, um, or mortgage, you know, in, in some of our cases, right. Versus some of the smaller places, but some of the smaller places couldn't function if it wasn't for these motherships. So we have a weird model. Like our most profitable location is not City Winery where we're sitting in New York. It happens to be City Vineyard down at Pier Twenty Six. Um, that we see as an extension of our of our mothership. 
we overlap management, you know, that mostly comes out of the mothership. The wine is made at the mothership. The, the marketing comes from the mothership. Like the brand was started here and we're able to send people there. So, you know, a lot of good comes from the mothership that doesn't fully get uh, manifested in our numbers here where it can be shown there. And we have the same thing happening in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a beautiful outdoor space, you know, um, along the river, yeah. river walking. That's so, our, yeah. So one other thing that I know that you guys do from my research, and um, I'll just get there and ask, this is a big part of your business plan, is the events. Not just not just Huge. the music venues. Huge. But the catering, the events, your space. Like, so get that into that. That was a big part of the... Okay. You know, again, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I've heard someone say that. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but it's, I've heard it it's, a couple times. It sounds really true, <laughs> yeah. and frankly, in this particular case, it was. You know, again, when I look back at the knitting factory, and I was looking at how big of a space do I want to have, and we're talking now about you know capacity, so it's a good time to. I looked at New York, and I was like, from a capacity for a music event. 300 which was the old bottom line that's a good number you can you can actually at a certain ticket price you can start paying acts that are at a certain level live nation ag doesn't really care about 300 seat rooms they're only at a thousand capacity or more so okay i'm i can fly under their radar so good that made sense then from a square footage standpoint i was like all right i need what what is the perfect size for a wedding i don't you know don't ask me <laughs> single over here <laughs> All right. you know if 150 was your number from before yeah. i would say the number for a wedding is around 250 okay. you know it's those core 150 people you really like and then 100 you have no choice but to have yeah, to family. you know family <laughs> you know in, invitees yeah so 250 around tables happen to be about again the same volume as a 300 seated room so i was like this is the size space that we really need and and again, I wouldn't have had the ability to think through that so methodically um, if it wasn't for having screwed up and never been able to do a wedding ever at the knitting factory or never be able to do even the larger, you know, industry gathering because we were just too small. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, square footage to be able to really think about what made sense. So the... City winery model was really was well thought through. Then you got to find the right building. Yeah. So you know, I got lucky on our first building in terms of finding the space that made sense. It wasn't perfect. Yeah. You know, you came in the front door and you were in the room. Whereas now we figured out once we got to Chicago, my version two was so much improved over version one. And now here, you know, at Fifteenth Street, it's you know, it's definitely the three point So, um, what were version. those improvements, and what makes them improvements? Well. Um, we had a kitchen on Varick Street that was downstairs mm-hmm. that the staff had to walk upstairs because the elevator we had didn't – it worked for that rare moment that somebody who needed it, but it was not a real functional for, for the team. So they're running up the, the stairs. Then they would op- have to open a door because we had to keep it closed or else the noise would come into the venue. And then they – pass through what was our barrel storage, which was 50 degrees, to go to the restaurant. So, you know, I I know Danny didn't need to talk about this because it's so obvious in his book that you don't take a hot 
plate of food and walk through a refrigerator before you deliver it yeah. to a customer. So that was how we were doing it on Varick Street. You know, not yeah. the smartest thing. You know, again, walking into a private party, but you will open up the door. So there's just so many lessons, you know, not having a dressing room, you know, that was like a, a Martin Scorsese walk through the kitchen, you know, that these kind of things. There are a lot of those physical design lessons that, yeah. we, that you know, happened and were fixed by the time we got to Chicago. And then by the time I got to Nashville and then Atlanta, we kept improving on the models. By the time we reopened New York, you know, 14 years later, we're, you know, here, it's really no question the, yeah. the the smartest space it's crazy to think we only have 15 minutes left together times going by so fast wow. um it does go by really fast uh i do want to see if i can't get one more nugget from you regarding what you've learned over your your you know, years of operation one thing we haven't discussed up to this point that you were hoping we would discuss for what what is that topic we want that you want to get into before we start to wrap things up well you know i'm i'm real glad we talked about base camp yeah. because I can't do what I want to do without really great people. Mm-hmm. And and how how to get the 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 DNA of of our comp, you know my ideal company infused into everybody is is the most important trick. Um and and for me base camp and using this moment where we can really discuss who we are you know, what is our DNA as a business is the best way to, to, to both train, inspire, and, 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 and get a core team. And I love nothing more than when I hear, you know, that there's this young person who's been hearing about Basecamp and they're, they really want to come this next year because, you know, they love the company. There's nothing that, you know, makes me happier because, you know, that we've, we're, we're touching on that person's passions to as 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 for what possibly they want to do for the rest of their lives yeah and for for me to create a platform for for that person is is so exciting i love what we're doing i love the philanthropic work we do um you know i i think we have a a part of our dna is selfish philanthropy Mm -hmm. you know it's so easy for us to donate a table for two and a you know um, a, a little wine experience for the PTA of of any public school. So you know, we get hundreds of requests. We don't say no. We yeah. don't say no. Take us back to this base camp and uh, yeah. let's drill down here. If, if we're listening to this right now, I love the idea of bringing people together regularly. And if I'm going back to lessons I've learned in the show, Mario Del Perro talking about culture and then drilling down even further about uh, rituals and how you, if you look at any culture across the world, they have rituals. They have these things that repeat all the time. They have language, certain way to talk things to say for you. That's calling it base camp and and literally weaving these things into your culture. So when you reflecting at base camp, what is base camp? Like what is the agenda If today's base camp or what is it? A one day event, two day event, two days, what what happens? Like what what take us paint the picture of what base camp is so we can recreate this. So there's all of the normal what you'd think of as a company offsite requirements of 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 success. Team building. You want you want to weave in the opportunity for you know Joe and Sally to you know meet and have a drink and laugh and you know, meet a new friend that works in the company. And the more you see cool people that, you know, are also in the company, the more you feel, you know, comfortable 
in that this is the right place. So hopefully we're creating a, a team building component. Hopefully we're creating a very clear map of where are we going for the next year. No question about this. This is what we're going to do. Hopefully we're creating a personal map. Where what what do I want to achieve in my job over the next year? What are the best practices to achieve that? You know, let's talk to the other people who are in marketing in the different cities and and what do they do to get people to come into the room? You know, what 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 can I learn from that person? So we create all kinds of activities within the departments of the different cities so people can get the best practice from those other cities. It's invoking um, intention, it sounds like. Just like like where are are we just reacting or are we being proactive? Or are we picking destinations? Th- that's a running theme of mm-hmm. proactive versus reacting. Yeah. Um you know, we go through some game plan. We always I always try and have an inspirational speaker. Um uh you know it's just it 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 it, it, it and and allow and weave in the 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 um the theme if you will so i i've had i you know i've i've always wanted gary to come but he's you know got he's high demand he's kind of expensive <laughs> but um you know i've i've had filmmakers i've had to, again the chief branding officer from the hard rock this last year we had aaron ralston the person that was the theme of 127 hours um you know the movie who, who were talking about survival yeah. and and the will to survive and which was uh, super appropriate for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah especially being an event venue during a, a social distancing. Yeah. Uh, period. obviously I, a very, very tough. I can imagine. I, I'm trying to stick, stay away yeah. from talking about COVID-19 because yeah, I don't okay. want to drill that. Yeah. There's been so much. That, I mean, look, we, hopefully we're, we're, we're through it. Hopefully we're all going to be smarter and tougher than those who survived and, and, and and maybe all more considerate people on this planet, but I don't know. So far, going into twenty two, it doesn't seem like the planet's right. that much more considerate. So, um, yeah. So typically, I, around this point, I ask my guests. You know, I remind everybody. Uh, I have a little ritual myself. You know, remind people of what the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Mm. And I ask my guests, what, what do you think needs to change about our industry? How, like, if if you're transforming the industry. What does that look like? How does it need to transform? And I and I am going to say that you you wrote a book that I think probably touches on a lot of this. And I have already invited you to come back on the show. I want to go deep into that, but give us a little teaser of what you think needs to change about the industry and what you're doing to change the industry. Well, okay, I think everybody needs to think more environmentally forward. Um, you know, the pandemic might be the big. And I didn't mean to go there, but the, it might okay. be the. Tip to. of an iceberg in terms of how the planet needs to get together and start figuring out the next big problem we all are going to have to deal with, and and this might be you know um, so much worse than than COVID nineteen. Um, you know when this river goes up six feet, I'm screwed. You know when every vineyard in California burns, we don't have you know grapes. You know, there's there's a you know there the weather in the South has been you know tremendous. You can't run a restaurant when you're bordered up. You know, three four times a year. So climate change is real. Yeah, we all have a big impact, and we affect a lot of people. So for us, you know, the idea of off-premise wine in a fake recyclable bottle and plastics even worse than glass, that's something we can do. Um, and so there are people who are, are who are thinking about that, and yeah. I think that's 
for me right now, you know, number one on, on the agenda. I think it has to be the restaurant industry that creates this change. And I say inspire and transform, you know, inspire and power and transform the industry. But really what I'm trying to do with this podcast is change the world. But I do believe that if we can change the restaurant industry, the restaurant industry can be at the leading edge of transforming the world. For sure. We have so much influence. Uh, and if we can get, we influence young people, which is what people don't realize. We're first jobs, yep. you know, and if we can influence and transform our employees and give them these values, yep. they're going to take those values and they're going to expect them later in life from other employees. We can change the world in this industry. Everything comes back to education yeah. and whether it's race, whether it's religious and, 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 and whether it's about the environment, it, it the education comes and those those first lessons outside of school is that entry level job. And, and yes, the hospitality industry is a big bit of that. Yeah, for sure. And um, I don't think we need to, to say anything else there, but it is happening. Change is happening. Yep. Uh, and I just want to point out one thing that I noticed that I thought was beautiful when I was in, I'm actually staying in Jersey city uh-huh. cause it's way cheaper to stay over <laughs> there um, right next to the path train. And there's a no bag mandate there which I thought was amazing. And honestly, I'm walking around and I remember being in the city like even like two or three years ago and just thinking about how, no offense, how filthy it is sometimes. It's yeah. just trash. Cause I'm from New Hampshire. Uh-huh. So like we don't see a lot of trash outside, you know, yeah. um, but just plastic bags and every, it's just all over the place. But just after he had said that, sorry, no bag mandate, I start, I intentionally started looking around to see it's a much cleaner, yeah. Like there's not filth all over the place like it used to be, and we're making moves in the right direction. It's happening. Like, um, I think it's going to happen a lot faster now. We're building momentum. I hope the momentum uh, continues. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we're going to bust out a true speed round. All right. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy, and you've been hearing me talk about Diageo Bar Academy on my podcast for some time now. Uh, Diageo Bar Academy is a totally free resource for bartenders, bar managers, and those in the hospitality industry. Today, I want to tell you about some of these amazing new e-learning courses they have available right now. And again, a reminder, Diageo Bar Academy is always free with tons of resources that help you build your your skills at your own pace and at any level. So back to these courses, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's day too. You'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pine. Every time learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant's more geared towards the booze, if you want to learn more about balancing flavors with spirits and food pairings, take the interactive course, Spirits and Food Pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate the dining experience and help your check average. Diageo Bar Academy online courses offer real life skills to help you grow in your career. They are always free, interactive, and each e-learning course takes less than 30 minutes. And you receive a certificate upon completion, which you can view on your profile at any time. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Look, nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face to face. That's just the way people choose to communicate and there's not much we can do about it or is there? Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that Talk to the Manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I I personally love most about talk to the manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard and talk to the manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus with talk to the manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant service product or facility, your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve using talk to the manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use talk to the manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? A strength. Endorphins. <laughs> Share your biggest weakness. What's, what's your biggest weakness? Endorphins. No, uh, I mean the opposite. Maybe is is a uh, overindulgence. Yeah. Uh, what is w- one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team? It's not in the resumes. It's it's it it's it's the personality of the person. It's not one word. The one word I would go with is is, and it's not just creativity, but it's just. A unique uniqueness. I hear a lot higher for attitude. Is that kind of aligned with what you're saying? Or yeah, I mean it is. I think attitude is part of the uniqueness. I think there's some people who don't necessarily have that attitude that's expressed the way you know strong, yeah. outgoing person, and it can be really quiet or meek or whatever. Might be perfect for what we're looking for. Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? So many different directions to go right. with that one. People. How are you overcoming it? Making our the job more even more attractive than it than it is. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be. Consider it. Share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. Something that's common within city wineries across the country, but not common throughout all restaurants. <laughs> Well, the the joke was going to be pushy, but I think everybody's pushy. Um, now, I, it, similar to consider, which is empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, we we use that a lot. Yep. Think about our customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? I think I can think of one book you might want to recommend. Well, there's my book, <laughs> Indulge Your Senses. Um, I, I'm sure how many people said setting the table so here? So many people. Um, this is just to be an outlier myself. Um, 
the, the overstory. Okay. Which Alex Powers wrote. It was one of the rare novels I've been able to read in a while. Um, and it, it talks about the interconnectedness connectedness of trees and and the what do you call that the mitochondria or whatever the oh the, the mushroom li- um, talking the li- the the starts with an L but it's yeah. the white stuff that you see that underneath in the soil that it's is all communi- that that shows how nature is all connected and yet it's an incredible novel on the overstory of the of the people but the importance of trees and mm. and and it sounds silly but it it it's a it's just such a human story and it relate and I'm I'm don't mean to explain too much, but it just it 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 goes now to my thesis in life of how important it is to indulge your senses. It's, yeah, it's all connected to I think which is like, like an underlying message there. Uh, awesome stuff. Uh and again your book as well. So what was the title of that book one more time? That one was The Overstory. The Alex, Overstory. Yeah. Got it. it was, um it's pretty big. And you're coming back. We're gonna do a remote interview to go deep into your book because I, I really want to unpackage that as well. Uh, all these links will be in the show notes. Uh, what is one service you've hired or outsourced? So this isn't a technology, but this is people who do something that you can never do as good on your own. Mm-hmm. We, we bring in a lot. Um, that That's really interesting. I mean, we can't certify our own accounting statements, but that's such a boring answer. <laughs> Um, the, the purpose of this question is really to help good people connect with good people. Yeah. So restaurants, helping restaurants connect with good services. Wow. We don't clean our, our chimneys very well ourselves. <laughs> um, our windows are filthy as you can see. Um, um, I mean, we, we do our own marketing. We do our, our own ticketing. Uh, we, we try and do a lot ourselves um, more than maybe we should. Um. Wow. Maybe we can circle back to that. I was going to say. I mean, look at PR agencies. There's no question um, that there's, there's. Who's your that, publicist? We we have one in almost every city. Okay. Uh, is it the same group or is it no, different? Different, groups? different group. Who's your publicist in New York? Woman named uh, uh, Fox. All right, I'll have. I'm pretty sure I know who she is because she Michelle us Fox. <laughs> but I'll put her link in the show notes if you guys want. If you're looking for and, uh, and, and actually the name of the firm, I swear. I, so see, I only deal with Michelle Fox, but the firm is actually I think called Fox Greenberg. Got it. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Well, clear. Take care of their employees. What is one technology you've recently adopted within your restaurants that's had a huge impact? on communication, profitability, anything along those lines. Uh, pre-order uh, your your beverages before you come to have sit, waiting at your table when you arrive. So it's a feature that lets people order their drinks before they get here. Before they get here. It's, there's nothing worse for me than, than you know the rubber neck that can happen when you're looking. Because you sit down, you really want to have that first drink. Yeah. If you can get the first drink into someone's hands, then the pause can be longer than than it should be but at least someone's got a drink in their hand and i think i saw toast downstairs. we use toast and is that a feature on toast it's a feature on toast do you know what it's called no it, okay. actually i'm sorry it's not on toast uh, it should be okay um we should be hired by toast if they're listening you know <laughs> i appreciate the friends and family stock but we need more um uh we have a lot of ideas for them no we that is a feature on our website which is our own designed um you know program 
But it back ends to toast, obviously. It has it. to. Got it. Uh, name, this is actually the last question right here. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. Mm. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of you, humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? It's a tough one. Wow. Um, think outside the box. One. Selfish philanthropy. Two. A, a team leader. Three. Uh, I've loved this conversation, Michael. Thank you so much. We find the majority of our guests by calling out people that you respect and admire. So who do you respect and admire? And if they were a guest on the show, you'd be absolutely listening in to learn from that person. Well, I learned more about crypto blockchain um, in five minutes besides my two sons who were pretty pretty eye-opening uh guy named david packman it's not hospitality um uh i've learned about the intricacies of of in the, the finesse of politics a guy named andrew roche um i think so i no i'm just trying to keep so that was david like, andrew yeah, you and you, you, but you wanted hospitality. Those, that's fine. I, yeah. I can do some workshops. We can go yeah. drill down deep into specific topics. Uh, so, David, Andrew, look out! I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you guys on the show. Mm-hmm. And um, how can we connect? Or if we want to come join your team, what's the best way to connect? Well, I'm sure online at citywinery.com. I mean, the best way to get a job here is to send me an email, Michael at City Winery. I will, you know, there it is. How it's many employees there. do you have now? A lot. Wow, and And to send me a note and somehow get me on your radar, then I'll send it to Anum, who's our chief people officer. And, and But at least it gets to the top of her inbox. I mean, yeah. we've, we've just hired our second full-time in-house recruiter. Uh, hiring has never been more important. And if we're going to scale and grow, we need a lot of wood flooring. You know, we need a lot of sound systems. We need a lot of lighting systems and and winemaking gear. But the most important thing we need are really, really good people. And so um, in terms of supply chain, that's the single most important thing. Yep. Uh, be sure to stick around for the closing thoughts. I'll share the episode number and we'll let you know how you can get. Uh, we'll have you know everything that was recommended in today's show right there. The links to the books or any tools that are recommended right there in the show notes. Uh, I just cannot say thank you enough, Michael. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> thank you. Beautiful. This was fun. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Michael Dorf, for just dropping bombs of knowledge all over the place. I know I left today's conversation feeling a little bit more empowered and inspired. And really, I resonated with this because, like Michael, I think my talent is seeing the strengths in others. And my talent is bringing people together uh, for a certain cause. And uh, you don't need to be the technician you don't need to be the star uh you can be the person who sees the star and wants to share that star with other people i think there's a lot of opportunity for that type of individual in this industry so awesome stuff today Uh, we have a really busy couple weeks coming at you so next week actually i should say this week as this episode goes live in the network we have the habits club so i don't know if you guys are aware of this but we have a club centered around the idea of helping form and develop habits because i think that's at the the peak of it all, uh, your ability to 
create routine and habit and to reduce the friction, the resistance against getting things done in your life. If that's something you want to be a part of, come join the network and join the habits club. Also this week we are doing a workshop on new higher training best practices. So there's a lot of green people in the industry right now. I mean, over the past couple of years, uh, people haven't been able to work. And now people that were 16 years old when the pandemic started are now 18, 19 years old and they're just getting their first job and they've never worked in the industry before. So we're going to be covering best practices around uh, hiring and training these new hires. And we have two leaders in the field of, of training to come join us and lead this conversation. We're going to have Josh Sharkey, the founder and CEO of Mies, representing the back of house. And we have Danielle Casilio, the founder and CEO of Yelly App, here to represent the front of house. So it's going to be a really great conversation. Also, next week, we might have Restaurant 365 in the network to discuss when you know you're ready to implement a robust system like restaurant 365. I always suggested people start with a tool like QuickBooks and graduate to restaurant 365, but there's a lot of people that believe you can start with a tool like restaurant 365 from day one. Uh, but we're going to cover what I would like to cover at least is where people go wrong when they, they fail in using these tools. Uh, also the week of the 25th, First, we're going to be in Los Angeles and Salt Lake City. So if you want to connect while we're out there, be sure to hit us up. Eric at RestaurantStoppable.com. All right, guys. Until next time, peace out.